millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Los Angeles, California, one of the most famous cities in the world. It is the sun-kissed metropolis of celebrity, beauty, and wealth, where so many have come seeking fame and fortune, and a little of that Southern California laid-back vibe. And during the 1960s, Los Angeles became a hippie mecca of free love, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But before the decade was over, Los Angeles would experience one of its darkest chapters. Author Joan Didion wrote in the White Album, her 1979 book of essays, Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969. That was the day when pregnant actress Sharon Tate and four others were brutally murdered by followers of Charles Manson. Then, two more killings happened the following night. As news of the ritualistic murders spread across the city, fear and panic set in. And almost overnight, the free-loving innocence of the 1960s was gone. Then, three months later, another body was discovered. It was the body of a young woman who had been dumped over the south side of Laurel Canyon on Mulholland Drive, only five miles from the secluded Beverly Hills home where Sharon Tate and four others had been murdered. The victim was a young, attractive female, and an autopsy later revealed that she had been stabbed many, many times. Immediately, the Los Angeles Police Department wondered if the woman was another victim of Charles Manson and his followers. She bore a similarity to the other young female hippies who were Manson groupies, and the viciousness of the attack matched Manson's M.O. And she wasn't the first victim found on that stretch of Mulholland Drive. Eleven months earlier, the body of a teenage girl had been discovered a short distance away. She had been identified, but her attacker had not been caught. Were all these murders connected? And was this the killer's dumping ground? But who was this latest victim? With no identification, the police had little to go on. She had not been sexually assaulted or robbed. She was wearing two distinctive rings on her fingers, and she was fully clothed. The woman had no identification, but there was one potential clue found in her clothing. The tag in her blue corduroy jacket read, Made in Canada. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true life story of a beautiful young woman who chased her dreams to the City of Angels in the fall of 1969. But just a few short weeks after settling into her new California lifestyle, she was brutally murdered and dumped over the edge of a canyon framing the Hollywood Hills. No one knew who she was, 
and no one ever came for her. She was an unidentified female lying in the Los Angeles city morgue in 1969. Eventually, she would be cremated and buried in an unmarked grave in a city that she didn't belong in. As the peace and love of the 1960s gave way to the protests and politics of the 1970s, the investigation into the mystery girl's murder continued and questions remained regarding a possible connection to Charles Manson. He and his family of followers would be tried and convicted for seven murders, and eventually they would be convicted of two additional killings. But were there even more victims of the Manson cult? And was the unidentified female one of them? Over four decades would pass before new evidence in an old box might finally reveal some answers regarding the identity of the beautiful young woman murdered in 1969. And a family far away from the glitz and glamour of Los Angeles, California, would finally know what happened to their beloved daughter and sister. But once she is identified, will it bring the police closer to discovering her killer? This is Unforgotten, Jane Doe, number 59. It was late afternoon on Saturday, November 15th, 1969, when 15-year-old Trevor Santochi was out birdwatching close to the intersection of Mulholland Drive and Beaumont Drive in the Hollywood Hills area of Los Angeles. As the boy walked along the edge of the winding road, he spotted something down in the steep canyon. It looked like a bunch of clothing. Walking into the dense underbrush to get a closer look, the boy suddenly realized it was a body. When the Los Angeles police arrived on the scene, they discovered the fully clothed body of a young woman. It was immediately obvious to the officers on site that she had been murdered somewhere else and then dumped over the side of the steep embankment. Blood streaks on the asphalt road indicated she had been dragged from a vehicle. The killer had probably assumed that her body would roll down the deeply forested canyon and never be discovered but she had gotten entangled in the brush and landed only 15 feet down the ravine. The girl's body was transported to the L.A. County Coroner's Office, where an autopsy was conducted. The victim was estimated to be between the ages of 20 to 23. She was slim, 5 foot 9, and had green eyes and shoulder-length brown hair. The post-mortem examination revealed that the girl had died 24 to 48 hours prior to being discovered. She had been stabbed multiple times in the face, neck, and torso. Defensive wounds on her hands indicated that she had fought with her attacker. The weapon was likely a common penknife, but whoever had wielded it used it to stab his victim 157 times and her throat had been cut. She had not been sexually assaulted or robbed and was still wearing two rings on her fingers. Two months after the discovery of her body, the police released a post-mortem sketch of the unknown girl to the media. They also released an image of her clothing and jewelry. At the time of her death, she had been wearing hip-hugger jeans with a trendy wide leather belt a tan-colored sweater, and a blue corduroy jacket that had a Made in Canada on the label. The girl's tan leather boots said Made in Spain. Was there unknown victim from either of those countries? The clothing was a potential clue, but the police did know she wasn't from Los Angeles. The lack of smog in her lungs during the autopsy proved that. Using tools available at the time, 
the unknown victim's face was forensically reconstructed to show what she may have looked like, and the LAPD sent images and dental charts to their international counterparts. But no matches were found. Detectives in the North Hollywood Police Bureau combed through the reports of hundreds of missing females. There were so many lives and dreams lost in the shadow of Tinseltown, but none of them were her. Who was the girl lying in the Los Angeles County morgue? What was her name, and where had she come from? Without the answer to any of those questions, she officially became Jane Doe, number 59, for the year of 1969. But then, a few months after her murder, someone came forward and said she knew who she was. But if this person was correct, then Jane Doe, number 59, may have been caught up in one of the most heinous crimes of the century. On the morning of Saturday, August 9, 1969, three months before Jane Doe's body was found, the Los Angeles Police Department received a strange call. It was a 15-year-old boy calling. He said he lived at 10090 Silo Drive, a quiet cul-de-sac in Benedict Canyon. He told the police that a frantic woman had just shown up at their house, screaming, murder, death, bodies, blood everywhere. The woman was Winifred Chapman, the housekeeper at 10050 Silo Drive, and she had just discovered the mutilated bodies of five people in the Beverly Hills home. When three patrol officers arrived at 9.05 that morning, they discovered a horrific scene. Just inside the gates of the home, they found the body of a young red-headed teenager slumped in a car at the foot of the driveway. He had been shot and stabbed. As they walked towards the front entrance of the European-style bungalow, they spotted what looked like two red mannequins sprawled on the well-manicured lawn about 50 feet apart. The lifeless forms were the blood-covered bodies of one male and one female, and both appeared to have been savagely attacked. Three bodies, and the police officers hadn't even entered the house yet. They feared the scene would be even worse inside. The officers were careful not to step in the bloody footprints on the stone pathway leading up to the entrance of the home. They noted that a window screen had been cut and another window was open. With guns drawn, they entered the house and discovered two more bodies. They found a young woman lying on the living room floor with a white nylon rope wrapped around her neck. She had been stabbed multiple times. Her long blonde hair was matted with dried blood, and it appeared as though she was also very pregnant. A second bloodied corpse was also found in the living room. The male victim had the same rope wrapped around his neck and a towel covering his face. Looking through the rest of the house, nothing else seemed disturbed. It was obvious that most of the victims had been asleep in their beds when the intruders arrived, and they had tried to flee. It did not appear to be a robbery gone bad, as most of the victims were wearing expensive jewelry, and other valuable items in the house were undisturbed. The police discovered that the phone lines to the house had been deliberately cut, and the word pig, P-I-G, was scrawled in blood on the white front door. The three responding officers had never seen anything like this in their careers. In fact, no one had. 10050 Silo Drive wasn't just a murder scene. It, according to those who were there, was a human slaughterhouse. 
How is it possible that five persons could be killed here in this home without at least one of them getting away? Actress Sharon Tate were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. A white hood over Sebring, the word pigs, written in blood on the front door. One of the most horrific things I've ever seen in the whole time I was a policeman. Found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Within a couple of hours of discovering the bodies on Silo Drive, reporters and photographers were already outside the wrought iron gates of the house. Monitoring the police radio bands, the report of five deaths in the wealthy suburb got everyone's attention. News of the murders traveled fast. Five slain in Bel Air blared every radio station across Los Angeles County. The victims had not yet been identified, but word was already getting out that they were rich and famous. By that Saturday afternoon, dozens of police were on the scene looking for any clues to what had transpired sometime the night before. A neighbor reported hearing what may have been gunshots around 1 a.m., and another said his dogs had started barking around 2 a.m., at around 4.30 that morning, the paperboy had deposited the Saturday edition of the Los Angeles Times in the mailbox at the front gate of the house. He later told police that the only strange thing he noticed was some telephone wires hanging over the gate. By late Saturday afternoon, the next edition of the Los Angeles Times and every other news source would announce the names of the five victims murdered at 10050 Silo Drive. Twenty-six-year-old actress Sharon Tate was married to famous director Roman Polanski and was eight and a half months pregnant with their first child. She had been stabbed 16 times. Jay Sebring, a 35-year-old celebrity hairstylist and former boyfriend of Sharon Tate had been stabbed seven times and shot once. 25-year-old Abigail Folger, heiress to the Folger Coffee Company, had been stabbed 28 times. 32-year-old Wojtek Frakowski, Abigail Folger's boyfriend, had been shot twice, struck over the head 13 times, and had been stabbed 51 times. The final victim found in his car in the driveway was 18-year-old Stephen Parent. He had been shot four times. And while the other four victims were close friends, Steve Parent had been visiting someone who lived in the guest house on the property. It looked like he had been leaving when he encountered the evil that had descended upon the house on Silo Drive that night. As news of the murders spread across the city, panic and fear set in. Rumors of a ritualistic murder scene, possibly the work of devil worshippers, was already taking hold. If famous rich celebrities living in Beverly Hills weren't safe, then who was? And before that weekend in August of 1969 was over, the citizens of Los Angeles would discover that no one was safe from the madness that had been unleashed by one man. On the night of Saturday, April 9th, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca were driving home to Los Angeles from Lake Isabella, a popular resort area approximately 240 kilometers from Los Angeles. They had dropped off their 15-year-old son at a friend's lakeside cabin. Driving along the freeway in their green Thunderbird with their speedboat in tow, they were listening to the radio reports of the murder of Sharon Tate and four others. Rosemary was particularly upset to learn that the victims had been ambushed in their home in the middle of the night because she had recently been concerned that someone had been in their house. Items had been moved around, and their dogs had been let outside. But maybe she was just being paranoid. The LaBiancas lived at 3301 Waverly Drive 
in the Los Feliz district of Los Angeles, a quiet suburban neighborhood close to Griffith Park. Lino LaBianca was the president of a chain of Los Angeles supermarkets, and Rosemary owned a dress shop. They had been married for 10 years, and Rosemary had two children from a prior marriage. It was close to 2 a.m. by the time they got back to the city that Saturday night. They dropped Rosemary's daughter off at her apartment and then stopped off at a local newsstand to grab a copy of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. John Focianos ran the newsstand, and the La Biancas were regular customers. The three of them spoke about the Tate murders, and Mr. Focianos remembered that Rosemary seemed particularly shaken by the news. But then again, who wasn't? It hadn't even been 24 hours since the bodies were discovered, and the press were already spreading rumors of ritualistic killings and devil worshippers. It was going to be a busy few days at the newsstand, thought Mr. Focianos, as he watched the La Biancas drive away. Little did he know that he would be the last person to see the couple alive. And 24 hours later, their names would be on the cover of the newspapers he was selling. On Sunday, April 10th, Rosemary LaBianca's 15-year-old son, Frank, returned from his friend's cabin on Lake Isabella. After putting his fishing equipment away in the garage, he tried to get into the house through the back door, but it was locked. He knocked on the door, but there was no answer. Then, he noticed that all of the window shades were down in the house. That was unusual. Frightened, he ran to a nearby payphone and called his 21-year-old sister, Suzanne. Suzanne and her boyfriend met Frank at the La Bianca's home on Waverly Drive. And using a spare set of keys, they let themselves in through the back door. And there, in the darkened house, they discovered the bodies of their parents. When the police arrived, they discovered another gruesome scene. Lino LaBianca was lying on the living room floor with a lamp cord wrapped around his neck. There was a bloody pillowcase over his face and his hands were tied behind his back. He had been stabbed multiple times and there was an ivory-handled carving fork protruding from his stomach and someone had carved the word war into his flesh. Rosemary LaBianca was lying face down on the bedroom floor in a pool of blood. She had been stabbed numerous times and also had a pillowcase over her head and a lamp cord around her neck. And in the house, there were more writings. On the living room wall, death to pigs. On the opposite wall, a single word, rise. And on the refrigerator door in the kitchen, helter, skelter, spelled incorrectly. All of the words had been written in the victim's blood. Los Angeles has had another multiple murder. Last night, a middle-aged couple was stabbed to death in a case that has striking similarities to the mass murder Saturday of actress Sharon Tate and four friends. Murder scene, police searched again for the murder weapons. They found nothing. Tonight, the city of Los Angeles is uneasy after two strange murders have left seven dead and no clues to the killers. Second ritual killing, Los Files couple slain, declared the August 11th Monday morning headlines across Los Angeles. For millions of Angelinos commuting to work that morning, the news of the double murder was terrifying. In the span of 48 hours, seven people had been viciously attacked and killed in their homes. But were these bizarre murders linked somehow? All of the victims had been white and lived in affluent Los Angeles neighborhoods. Robbery did not appear to be the motive in either location and the savagery of the killings could not be overlooked. And there were the writings in blood, pig at the Tate murders, 
and death to pigs at the La Bianca scene. What did they mean? And where would the killer or killers strike next? Suddenly, the Southern California city, known for sunshine and celebrity, was paralyzed with fear. There was a maniac on the loose. Gun shops began selling out, and private security firms couldn't keep up with the demand for their services. Locksmiths and alarm companies were working around the clock, and people were buying guard dogs. And while the news media had instantly linked the two murder scenes, the Los Angeles Police Department were still connecting the dots. Yes, there were many similarities, but they wanted to pursue all possible leads. Various drugs had been found at the house on Silo Drive. So could it have been a drug deal gone bad? And it was rumored that Lino LaBianca may have had some dealings with the mafia. Could he have been targeted by underworld associates? Or were the LaBianca murders the work of a copycat? Detectives didn't want to reveal too much to the already frenzied media. But the police also knew that there had been another bizarre murder. On July 31st, nine days before Sharon Tate and her house guests were attacked, the police had been called to 964 Old Topanga Road in Malibu. There, they had found the body of Gary Heinemann, a 34-year-old music teacher. He had been stabbed to death, and a cryptic message had been left at the scene. Political Piggy was written on the living room wall in the victim's blood. But the police had already arrested someone for the music teacher's death, and he had been in custody when the Tate and LaBianca murders had taken place. So, if there was any connection, it could only mean one thing. There was more than one murderer. Robert Bobby Beausoleil was a young hippie musician who had been apprehended while driving Gary Heinemann's car. He had blood on his clothing, and the police found a knife in the tire well of the car. Beausoleil was a drifter with no fixed address, but he had recently been living at Spawn's Ranch, an old movie set location in the San Fernando Valley, north of Los Angeles. Beausoleil had been hanging out at the ranch with a bunch of other hippies, and word on the street was that they were an odd bunch, almost cult-like. And their leader was a guy named Charlie, Charles Manson. And apparently, he had convinced his loyal followers that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. On Sunday, August 17th, one week after the Tate and LaBianca murders, the Los Angeles Times reported a small, seemingly unrelated story. 26 people had been rounded up and arrested at the old Spawn Ranch in connection with a major auto theft ring. According to the news, the group had been stealing Volkswagen Beetles across the city and then converting them into dune buggies. The story didn't mention any names of those who had been arrested, but did note that a sizable arsenal of weapons had been seized at the ranch. A few days later, all of the suspects were released. For the next few months, the LAPD focused on numerous leads regarding the bizarre murders that had taken place on August 9th and 10th of that year. Over two dozen homicide detectives had been assigned to the cases, but the murders were still being investigated separately. As time passed without any updates from the police, the citizens of Los Angeles were feeling more and more anxious. And in the absence of any legitimate news, the media continued to fuel far-out theories and bizarre rumors of sex cults and satanic rituals. Frustrated by the lack of progress in the investigation, Roman Polanski offered a $25,000 reward for any new information 
that would lead to the killers of his wife Sharon Tate and their unborn son. Still, no one came forward. But then, around mid-October, the detectives working on the La Bianca case got wind of an update on the Gary Heinemann murder, the music teacher from Malibu. Police officers in a different county had conducted another raid on an isolated ranch north of Los Angeles. The Barker Ranch was located in an extremely rugged area south of Death Valley National Monument. They had arrested 24 members of a hippie cult known as the Manson family on charges related to arson and auto theft. It was the same group, along with their leader, Charles Manson, who had been arrested in August at the Spawn Movie Ranch. But while conducting the second raid, two young women had asked the police for protection from the rest of the group. One of the young women, named Kitty, turned out to be the girlfriend of Bobby Beausoleil, who had been arrested for the murder of Gary Hyman, and she had a story to tell. According to the pregnant 17-year-old, Bobby Beausoleil had been sent to the music teacher's house to get money from him. When he refused, he was stabbed to death. But it wasn't Beausoleil that had committed the murder, according to Kitty. It was another member of the Manson family, a girl named Susan Atkins. Fortunately, Susan Atkins had been arrested during the raid at the Barker Ranch, and she was now sitting in a Los Angeles jail. The police were anxious to speak with her. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On October 13th, the two lead detectives in the La Bianca murder investigation interviewed Susan Atkins. Susan admitted to being at Gary Hyman's house when he was murdered 
but stated it had been Bobby Beausoleil who stabbed the music teacher to death. It turned out that Hyman was familiar with the Manson family, including Charles Manson, who had actually lived with him at various times. But there was still no evidence that Manson or any of his followers knew the LaBiancas or Sharon Tate and her friends. There didn't seem to be any connection. 21-year-old Susan Atkins was arrested for the Gary Hyman murder and transported to the Sybil Brand Women's Detention Center in Los Angeles. And it wasn't long before she was going to give the police the information they needed to link Charles Manson to seven vicious murders and possibly more. It turned out that Susan Atkins loved to talk. Nicknamed Crazy Sadie because of her odd behavior, she had no issue with admitting to her cellmates that she had murdered Gary Hyman. But that wasn't all. She had more to tell, more to brag about. On November 6th, while sitting in prison, Susan Atkins confessed to being one of four people responsible for the horrific crimes committed at 10050 Silo Drive on August 9th. According to her, Charles Manson, a diminutive ex-convict turned cult leader, had planned the attack, directing his followers to sneak into the Benedict Canyon home rented by director Roman Polanski, where they killed his pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, and four others before dawn. Apparently, Manson had visited the French Normandy-style home when it was rented by Doris Day's son, Terry Melcher, who was a music producer. Manson had gone to the home to ask Terry Melcher for help in making a record, but Melcher had turned him down. Manson had commanded his followers to go to the home to kill Melcher after he was spurned. But Melcher had already moved out, so Manson ordered the death of the inhabitants anyway. Susan Atkins recalled in horrific detail how she personally had killed Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant. Susan's cellmate couldn't believe what she was hearing. It almost sounded too crazy, too wild to believe. Maybe she was just making it up. But Susan Atkins wasn't done talking. Susan laughingly mentioned the other two the next night. She was referring to the LaBiancas. And then Susan admitted there was more. More murders before and more murders after. And more to come. According to her, Charles Manson could not be stopped. And so, while Susan Atkins was bragging about the Tate and La Bianca murders, and possibly others, the body of a young, unidentified female was discovered off of Mulholland Drive on November 15, 1969. The location was only five miles from the secluded Beverly Hills home where Sharon Tate and four others had been brutally murdered. The young girl had also been viciously attacked, stabbed 157 times before being dumped over the edge of the canyon. Woman found slain in canyon read a small 14-line news story on page 2 of the Los Angeles Times on Monday, November 17, 1969. The paper said that the dark-haired woman, approximately 25 years old, had been stabbed several times and her throat had been cut. But no one came forward to say they knew who the murder victim was, so she became Jane Doe, number 59. Five days after Jane Doe, number 59, was found, a street maintenance worker came across a pair of black prescription glasses near the location on Mulholland Drive, and the police wondered if they could have been dropped by her killer. There was no other physical evidence linking the crime to anyone. But the discovery of her remains was eerily similar to another crime. 
On New Year's Day, 1969, the body of 17-year-old Marina Hab, who was kidnapped outside her West Hollywood home, was found less than half a mile from Jane Doe's body in the ravine off of Mulholland Drive. Hab, the daughter of a Hollywood screenwriter, also died from multiple stab wounds and her throat had been cut. Was there a connection to these two murders? The LAPD continued to follow all leads. Then, on December 1st, 1969, in front of over 200 reporters, Los Angeles Police Chief Edward Davis announced that arrest warrants had been issued for three people in connection with the Tate murders on August 9th and the La Bianca murders on August 10th. Charged with seven counts of murder were Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, and Charles Tex Watson. Chief Davis added that an additional four or five individuals, other members of the Manson family, would also be indicted. Then, two days later, on December 3rd, the Hollywood Citizen newspaper ran a story about the mystery girl found stabbed to death in the hills. While the police weren't saying anything about a possible connection, a woman had come forward to say that she recognized the murder victim as one of the girls who had hung out at the Spawn movie ranch where the Manson family had lived for over a year. Ruby Pearl was the stable manager at the ranch and was convinced that Jane Doe, number 59, was a teenager named Sherry, whom she had hired to work at the ranch. She said the girl was from Simi Valley and she had not heard from her since shortly after the Tate and La Bianca murders. Police later confirmed that a missing persons report had been filed on a teenage girl in that area. But based on a comparison of the two girls' descriptions, they did not believe that Jane Doe, number 59, was the missing girl from the ranch. As the 1970s began and Los Angeles became consumed with the Manson family and their upcoming murder trials, the LAPD continued to seek the public's help in trying to identify Jane Doe, number 59. On January 20th, 1970, the police released the post-mortem photograph of Jane Doe. But still, no one came forward. And as the Southern California city slowly regained a sense of normalcy after the Manson family arrests, the murder of the unidentified female went cold. The Manson murder trial lasted nine and a half months, the longest in U.S. history at the time. On January 25, 1971, Charles Manson was convicted of seven counts of first-degree murder for the Tate and La Bianca deaths. A year later, he was convicted of two more murders. Four other members of the Manson family including Susan Atkins, were also convicted of multiple homicides. In 1974, Deputy District Attorney and Lead Prosecutor in the Manson Trial, Vincent Bugliosi, released Helter Skelter, the true story of the Manson murders. The book presented his first-hand account of the investigation of the Tate-La Bianca murders and the arrest and conviction of Charles Manson and his followers. The book was an instant success and went on to become the best-selling true crime book in history. In his retelling of the harrowing murders that struck fear into the citizens of Los Angeles in 1969, Bugliosi states that he believed that the Manson family was responsible for other unsolved deaths, including the one of Jane Doe, number 59. The seasoned criminal attorney believed that Jane Doe, number 59, had been familiar with the members of the Manson family and may have even witnessed the murder of one of their members in Venice, California. On the night of November 5th, 
1969, the police were called to a shooting near Venice Beach. When they arrived at the scene, they found 22-year-old John Philip Howe, nicknamed Zero, dead from a single gunshot wound to the head. The four other people at the scene said the victim had been playing a game of Russian roulette and had lost. The police accepted the story and ruled it a suicide. But it turned out all of the witnesses were Manson followers and the gun didn't even have any fingerprints on it. It was also later determined that the gun had been fully loaded. So if the victim had been playing a game of Russian roulette, he was never going to win. Ugliosi believed that Jane Doe, number 59, had witnessed John Howe's death and was killed as a result. After the book was released, the LAPD would not confirm or deny Bugliosi's claims, and many years would go by before anyone else bothered to think about Jane Doe, number 59, and how she died. In 2001, 32 years after the body of a young unidentified female was found near Laurel Canyon, the Los Angeles Police Department created its first cold case unit. Veteran detective Cliff Shepard had already served more than 25 years on the force when he and six other detectives were assigned to look into unsolved murders dating back to 1960. Shepard started going through box after box of old files, and two years into his new role, he came across a file that really stuck with him. It was the case of Jane Doe, number 59, who had been found by a teenage birdwatcher in November of 1969. She had been stabbed 157 times. The photo of the corpse made her look around 20 years old, and Shepard realized that they would have been around the same age if she was still alive. Most of the evidence in the case had been destroyed, including clothing with tags that said made in Canada. But surprisingly, her blood-stained bra was still in the box. Shepard realized he had potential evidence that could be tested for DNA, a forensic test that hadn't been available in 1969. The DNA extraction was successful, and once the profile was done, Detective Shepard logged Jane Doe number 59's photo and forensic information into numerous databases across the country that dealt with missing persons and unsolved murders. But there were still no matches. Then he sent her file to the FBI, Interpol, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Still no hits. Detective Shepard wasn't willing to give up. He strongly believed that Jane Doe had been loved and was deeply missed by someone, somewhere. Over the next few years, he continued to call news agencies, urging them to publish her photo. But few of them showed any interest. They felt that the case was too old and unlikely to be solved. So Detective Shepard turned to the internet and the many online communities dedicated to solving unsolved crimes. Several websites agreed to post the information. The online profile showed the postmortem picture of Jane Doe, number 59, and the original facial reconstruction that had been done in 1969. It was a long shot, but the cold case detective hoped that someone would recognize her. More years went by, and Detective Shepard moved on to other cases, but never forgot about Jane Doe, number 59. He eventually retired in 2012. The cold case was then transferred to Detective Louise Rivera, who continued to follow up on the information that Detective Shepard had released to various web sleuths and missing persons websites. Finally, in 2015, Detective Rivera received a promising call. It was from a woman in Montreal 
and she believed Jane Doe, number 59, was her best friend from high school. For the cold case detective, Jane Doe's made-in-Canada jacket finally connected some of the missing pieces. The unidentified murder victim was Canadian. The woman on the phone told the detective that her 19-year-old friend had moved to Los Angeles in 1969 to meet up with a young man she had met in Montreal. The woman in Montreal said she had received a postcard from her friend saying she was having a good time in Los Angeles, but that was the last correspondence she had ever received. Years went by, and no one heard from her again. The woman put Detective Rivera in touch with her missing friend's sister. Anne Jervitson confirmed that her younger sister had traveled to Los Angeles in 1969 to visit a man she had met. The family had also received a postcard from her, and then had not heard from her again. Describing her sister as an adventurous, free-spirited girl, the family initially assumed that she was living a new life and would get in touch when she wanted. It was the 1960s, after all, and many young people were attracted to a more bohemian lifestyle. But then the months turned into years without any correspondence. A family friend eventually traveled to Los Angeles to look for her, and the family hired a private investigator. But strangely, they never filed a missing persons report. Ann Jervitson's DNA was compared to the DNA found in the blood on the unidentified girl's bra, and it was a match. Finally, in 2016, 47 years after her death, Jane Doe, number 59, was officially identified as 19-year-old Reet Jervitson from Montreal. Reet Sylvia Jervitson was born in 1950 in Sweden. The family, who were of Estonian descent, had fled their home country in 1944 during World War II and then immigrated to Canada in 1951, one year after Reed's birth. They settled in Montreal. Reed was the youngest of three children in the Jervitson family and was very artistic. After graduating from high school and wanting more independence, Reed moved to Toronto and started working for Canada Post. In the fall of 1969, Reed got on a Greyhound bus traveling west. She was planning to visit her brother who lived in Arizona, but her first stop was Los Angeles, California. The purpose of her trip to Los Angeles was to visit a guy she had met in Montreal a few months earlier. Not long after she arrived in Los Angeles, her family received a postcard that read, Dear Mother and Father, The weather is nice and the people are kind. I have a nice little apartment. I go frequently to the beach. Please write to me. Hugs. Reet. The postcard was dated October 31st, 1969. And that was the last time the family heard from her. They had no idea that just 16 days after writing that card, Reet was murdered. By 2016... Reet's parents had since passed away, never knowing what happened to their daughter. But her sister Anne had found the postcard in their belongings. They had kept it all these years. When Detective Rivera saw the card, he noticed a return address. Reet had been living at 5311 Melrose Avenue, apartment 306 in Hollywood. Detective Rivera went to the address. The location was the Paramount Hotel, right beside Paramount Studios. But the four-story building had since been demolished. Detective Rivera was at another dead end. He knew that Reed had stayed at the hotel with the boyfriend she had traveled to Los Angeles to be with. But who was this mystery man? 
Reed's friends and family told the detective that Reed had met a guy named Jean, or Jean, in a Montreal coffee shop, and he resembled Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, a popular 1960s rock band. Reed had also told friends that he was a medical student. But while Reed had fallen hard for the rock star lookalike, a few people in her inner circle had actually met him before Reed announced she was heading to L.A. to meet up with him. Detective Rivera described Jean or Jean as a person of interest because he may have been the last person to see Reed alive. Working with those who knew Jean in Montreal, the LAPD released a new composite sketch of the mystery boyfriend. The police also released a sketch of a second man who was believed to be Jean's roommate at the time. His name may also have been Jean or Jean, and he had what was considered to be a Beatles-type haircut. But to date, neither of these men have been found. Without any solid information on Jean from Montreal, Detective Rivera decided to look into the other potential lead in the case. Was Reed Jervison a victim of Charles Manson and his followers? Had she accidentally gotten involved with the hippie cult when she arrived in Los Angeles? The brutality of the crime and the proximity of where the body was found, less than five miles from the Tate murders, made it a distinct possibility. That is what Vincent Bugliosi had said in his best-selling book, Halter Skelter. The lead prosecutor of Manson and his family members was certain that Jane Doe No. 59, as she was known at the time, had witnessed the murder of one of Manson's family, and she had been killed to keep her quiet. As far as Bugliosi was concerned, Charles Manson was responsible for many other unsolved murders, including that of the unknown female who was viciously stabbed to death and then dumped off the edge of Mulholland Drive in November of 1969. Now, 47 years later, and armed with Jane Doe's true identity, Detective Rivera decided to follow up on Charles Manson's potential involvement with the unsolved murder. And the only way to do that was to go directly to the source. So in 2016, Detective Rivera traveled to the Corcoran State Prison to meet with Charles Manson and ask him about Reed Jervison's murder. Manson, according to the detective, was cooperative, but provided no information regarding the death of Reed Jervison. If Charles Manson did know anything about Reed Jervison's death, he took it to the grave with him, as he died one year later in November of 2017. While Detective Rivera was still pursuing a possible connection to Charles Manson and Reed Jervison's death, retired Detective Cliff Shepard traveled to Montreal to meet Reed's sister, Anne. For the family, it was a bittersweet meeting, but they wanted to thank the detective who had opened that cold case box and had never given up on trying to find the identity of Jane Doe, number 59. In 1969, a beautiful Canadian girl hopped on a Greyhound bus headed to California. Like many young people, she was looking for adventure and love. But tragically, she encountered evil lurking in the City of Angels, and she never returned to those who loved her and missed her. Was she another victim of Charles Manson and those who followed him? Or does a mystery man from Montreal named Jean know her true fate? For 47 years, she was an unknown murder victim. Jane Doe, number 59. But she was never forgotten, and now she is finally home. Her name was Reet Jervitson. Her murder case remains open with the Los Angeles Police Department. 
This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.